0: Hey, just a warning before we get started. This episode of Resistance deals with some heavy themes and has some strong language in it. We'll get started right after this short
1: break.
2: There's this photo, right? Even zoomed in, it's hard for me to pin down what I really love about it. It's in black and white, shot sometime in the 1950s. It's of a black dude in his late teens with a mustache barely thick enough to even be called a mustache. It's peach fuzz, really and he's leaning over as he sips what looks like ice-cold water out of a whites-only water fountain. I can't tell if I love this photo because of his shirt, this kaleidoscopic print short-sleeve piece that looks exactly like something I would wear exactly the way I would wear it, halfway buttoned down, showing some chest, like he's on vacation somewhere in Jamaica or a villa in Tulum. Not in the Jim Crow South which is where he actually is, in South Carolina. But I also really love how unbothered he looks staring directly into the camera. Like his eyes are dead center, perfectly aligned with the peak of the water. And I think, just put aside the politics of this photo for a moment, I don't care who you are. From Beyonce to Barack, drinking out of a water fountain is almost designed to make you look stupid. I mean, you're doing duck lips to try and suck in splashes of water from a small hose aimed at your face. That's not supposed to look good. But this man in this photo, he does. He makes drinking out of a water fountain look like something we should all try to do more of. Especially ones marked white only. And for the longest time, I thought I was the only person who was thinking this hard about this photo. But then I found an article that was written by this man named Leslie Mclemore for the website Black with No Chaser. I got Leslie to read me the opening paragraph of his article. He starts it off with the man in the photo's name,
3: Cecil J. Williams. And Cecil J. Williams is a civil rights pioneer. However, for the purpose of this write-up, I'm going to at times refer to him as Cecil Fuck Yo Found Williams, (laughs) Fuck Yo Found Williams. Fuck your fountain or Cecil. I like the name Cecil. If your name is Cecil, that lets me know you with the shits. That lets me know that you are about that life. That lets me know that you have a proclivity <laughs> for drinking ice cold, delicious water, generously seasoned with racist white tears from a white sony fountain.
2: <laughs> that, I, that opening, I love that opening for so many reasons. The way you broke down his name... Like see you right. Cecil Cecil is a real ass name. Like
3: that's a real you, ass dude. Yes. Right. You don't like you don't have you ever seen anybody fucking with somebody named Cecil? Never. And it's also like just an old ass, like Southern black name, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, right, right. It pops like, right. Like Willie or Otis or some shit, you know? Right, right, right. That's
2: (laughs) that's the name when old black men are like standing on the corner and they're telling stories about 50 years ago. They're like, I was there. Cecil was there. Willie was there. We was all
3: there. (laughs) We we were all all there. No motherfucking white folks. And they were goddamn bullshit. Okay, okay. This shit about to get good. Okay. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Every once in a while, the photo of Cecil at the water fountain goes viral on social media. And that's how I came across it. And I think it keeps going viral because it's easy to look at that photo of Cecil and see yourself. Or at least the person you wish you could be. It's
3: aspirational.
2: It's like a blueprint.
3: You're like, damn, if I would, hell yeah, I would do that same thing. I would do that exact same thing. Yeah. Like, like, take a selfie of me, bro. You know, like, dog. Like, I mean, like, like that would be the perfect Instagram post. Oh, for sure. For, 19, for the mid-1950s. Right, right. <laughs> right. If Cecil had IG when this joint dropped. Yo, would be, yo he, would, he, would be, he would be Instagram influencer. He would be. Oh, my God. Yo, Cecil. His DMs would be popping. Ah, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> of if, if like a good looking guy like that? Oh, come on, oh, man. Yeah, it would be, it, it would, there
2: there'll be messages from Mabel. From Eileen,
4: <laughs> from
2: from <laughs> Judy, from Willie May.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had that shirt. That was a favorite shirt of mine. In fact, uh, when the picture uh, kind of um, got a lot of play on the social media, uh, I went on eBay to see if I could find maybe a type of shirt like that, but to no avail.
2: That is the man himself.
4: Well, good morning. My name is Cecil Williams. I am a resident of Orangeburg, South Carolina. Have lived here all my life.
2: So you've never, you've never moved anywhere else and lived anywhere else, really, long time. Uh,
4: one time, I founded a magazine, and I lived between Atlanta, Georgia, and South Carolina. But uh, been here all my life.
2: Wow! So you probably seen a lot of shit.
4: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's 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 a mild way of putting it. Yes. Yeah.
2: Beyond modeling for this IG-quality photo in the 50s, Cecil really is a civil rights pioneer. He's an author, an inventor, and he owns and operates a civil rights museum in South Carolina. And he's a photographer, too, a pretty well-known one. When he was a teenager, he was already a stringer for Jet Magazine. He'd go on to photograph defining moments in his home state, He shot the moment the first black student admitted to Clemson University walked on campus, captured iconic moments of young people protesting segregation in the South. And Cecil was arrested twice just for doing his job. But he also shot weddings, family parties, and eventually he made his way to photographing JFK's presidential campaign. Cecil was so good at his work that Kennedy would invite him to fly with other reporters on his private plane. But before the private plane or any of that, he was riding back from the beach one day with his friend. They'd gone to cover a story of a black man who was going to dip his toe into the Atlantic ocean as a form of protest because back then, even the ocean was segregated. On their hours long drive back home, he and his homie decided to stop real quick.
4: I was thirsty and I stopped at a filling station and I looked around and nobody was observing me and, uh, I took a drink out of the fountain and my friend photographed me with my camera and then I photographed him. Well, the water tasted no different from any other kind of water. In fact, I let it run for a second or two to um, because, you know, I wanted to make sure that if there were any uh, contaminants in it, that it would you know be OK.
2: What did you guys say to each other? Like you see the water fountain. What do you say to each other? Like, is it like implied that you're going to go do this thing or like what's well, the conversation?
4: Well, we're cracking up. I mean, we're we're jovial and in a very, uh, you know, um, happy mood because again, we are defying uh, one of the laws of the state that have so observed that it separates people according to their complexion and their race. Right. Um, it was one of those things that we um, again did sometimes did, uh, and <laughs> I have to say, kind of often. There were many times that I did similar things to this. Oh, yeah? And of course, my parents were furious. (laughs) (laughs) They they, they said, you did what?
2: The more I talked to the man, the more I realized that he's not just Cecil Fuck Your Water Fountain Williams. He's so much more. He's also Cecil Fuck Your Movie Theater Williams. When he was young, he'd sneak into a whites-only drive-in movie theater with his friends by camping out in a ditch where they could watch the whole movie without being seen themselves. And he Cecil Fuck Your Playground Williams. He told me about a whites-only playground near his house that he'd ride by on his bicycle all the time.
4: Every day as I passed by that playground, I looked at the beautiful new painted slide, the swing sets and those kind of playground things that go round and round and you just sit on it. Yep, yep, I know what you're talking about. One day, one evening, coming back near dusk and trying to get back home before dark. Mm-hmm. I looked in both directions and the playground was completely empty. I laid my bicycle down on the sidewalk and I walked and I played on that playground for just a few <laughs> minutes. How did it feel playing on that playground? Oh, it was wonderful because we had nothing like that. And right. Color, I remember the colors, you know, being a vivid red and being new. Yeah. Uh, the few playgrounds that we did have in the areas were mostly connected to the schools. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they were old, dilapidated, and sometimes you would get splinters in your butt if you slow slid down on the sliding board.
2: <laughs> and I'm just, like, imagining you, like, Swinging, swinging yourself on white people swings, like turning yourself around on a little roundabout thing that's not for you, like sliding down white people slides, yes. <laughs> <laughs> just not giving a damn about like what, what could happen. Like, I, I'm guessing you you maybe gave some of it a damn because you looked both ways before you did it, but like the fact is that you you did it. Like, what, why, why? <laughs>
4: I did it, I guess, because um, I, too, wanted to enjoy some of the things that were usually reserved for white people in the community.
2: Cecil makes these life-threatening decisions sound so simple, like it's the most logical thing for him or anybody to do. It's a luxury to know that we have people like Cecil to look back on. People who did the unthinkable over and over again during a time where that meant literally risking everything and somehow they did it without even breaking a sweat. I think that's why the white's only sign on the water fountain really has no power in the photo. It's reduced to a prop, an accessory to Cecil's undeniable flex. Even though it's right at the front, the sign on the fountain and all the hate and divisiveness it represents fades into the background of this black and white picture, and it pales in comparison to this man's pure, unshakable confidence. For me, It's the drip. It's the steez. It's the whole fuck your water fountain energy that immediately jumps out whenever I look at that photo of Cecil. And so, in honor of that fuck your water fountain energy, we're going to do a series of episodes on people who live up to that. People who push back fear and doubt and don't allow threats from the state, agents of the state, their parents. They don't let none of that shit hold them back. They want all the smoke. They go up against the odds, and they look damn good doing it. I'm Saeed T. John Thomas Jr., and this is Resistance, with the first entry into our Fuck Your Water Fountain Hall of Fame. Let's get into it. So I asked our team of reporters to come up with people they want to nominate into the resistance FYWF Hall of Fame. You know, people who can teach us something about how we should behave when we come up against some of the same kind of odds. And Bethel Hopte, one of our producers, said she had the perfect person, somebody I'd never heard of. So we sat down for a little bit and she told me all about him.
0: Have you ever been to New Orleans before?
2: No, I always wanted to go. I wanted to take a train to New Orleans. A train? Yeah, I wanted to take like a train ride down there and like live the train life and write poetry looking out the window.
0: Yeah, no, I went on one of those like long poetic train rides and most of it is just like your legs hurt and your hips (laughs) hurt. Okay. Don't do that. Just fly.
2: All right, cool. All
0: right, so this is a story that takes place in New Orleans in the late 1940s so we're talking like okay. deep south jim crow segregation all that uh-huh. and uh one day there's this young kid uh jerome smith jerome jerome Mm-hmm. Yeah. mm-hmm. he's on public transport mm. and you know how public transport set up you know black people in the back white people in the front but it, it actually is one level beyond that in some places uh, white people were so racist <laughs> that um, they are actual dividers in between the white section and the black section. Oh. So the white people wouldn't even have to see.
2: To look at people.
0: Yeah. He's uh, he's in the back of the bus. He- he's not sitting in a seat. It's standing room only. Keep in mind, this is before Rosa Parks. And uh, he's a kid and he's tired. And uh, he ends up taking down one of the dividers. Okay. Tossing it on the ground and having a seat in the white section. Oh. So you know what happens next. All the white folks in the front freak out. <gasps> the, the bus driver stops. <laughs> <laughs> like that is, that is what happens. The crowd is angry and yelling and um, really closing in on him. And the first person to touch him, to lay hands on him, It comes in the form of a smack on the back of the head.
2: Oh, okay.
0: It's a a black lady.
2: Oh, old black lady. Okay. She comes in
0: from the back, (laughs) and she's the one who's like, "What are you doing?"
2: (laughs) Right. Of course. Um, Of course.
0: She's like, what are you doing? Uh, she, she, she smacks him upside his head, drags him by the collar. And she tells all the white folks that she's she's going to take him home and take care of this. Right. Like she's going to give him a beating for disrespecting them. This is what she said. She said, you should be ashamed of yourself, disturbing these good white folks. Oh,
2: no. <laughs> and she
0: she told the people on the bus, the white people on the bus, I'm going to bring this little ball, bad behind boy back home. Let me take care of him. So sorry this happened.
2: No, auntie. That th- I, was th- I thought you were radical. What's going on? <laughs> I thought it was some radical love type shit. Well, you, I, like, I, nah. Okay.
0: So so let me just tell you what happens next. Okay. All right. All right. So this older black lady drags him off the bus and they go into a store. Once all the white people are out of sight, she gives him a hug and starts crying. Mm. She does not feed him. She really just did that to save him. And and get him out of get him out of that situation because she did see something life-threatening. Mm-hmm. And the thing she says to him is never stop doing what you're doing. Never stop taking that sign down.
2: Oh, let's go. <laughs> let's go.
0: She, you know, he did not mean, you know, he's he literally was just a kid. He he didn't mean for this to be protest, but Without knowing it, like, he, he really, he did that. And yeah. she saw that and, and told him what that was. And yeah. she took, he took that to heart. It ends up fueling this fire of activism that would run through his, his youth and then later on his whole life.
2: When we come back, Jerome grows up and has his very own fuck your water fountain moment. What's good, y'all? Welcome back. So Bethel is telling me about her nominee for the Fuck Your Water Fountain Hall of Fame, Jerome Smith.
0: So fast forward, when he's like 22, 23, he joins the Freedom Rides. So he is one of these foot soldiers, basically, in this nonviolent movement. Um, And that's like, so by 1960, America figured out Okay, yes, making Black people sit in the back of the bus is wrong and unconstitutional, but Southern states were ignoring that, and the federal government wasn't doing anything to enforce desegregation. So in 1961, a bunch of very, very brave people, including Jerome, were crisscrossing the South, boarding buses in mixed-race groups, and just for exercising that constitutional right— to sit wherever they damn pleased. Mm -hmm. Very racist white mobs came after them at these stops along the way. Uh, They would beat them with fists, baseball bats, iron pipes, brass knuckles. Um, They'd burn down their buses and the cops who would watch all this happen wouldn't break it up, but Mm -hmm. uh, they would finish it off by arresting them and taking them to jail. So Jerome was one of one of the people who who went through all of this and his injuries are are really really bad. And in in spring 1963, Jerome ended up in New York City getting getting treatment for them. So he's in New York, he's in Lenox Hill mm-hmm. on the on the upper east side and and randomly this is May 1963. He gets asked to join this group of activists to meet Robert F. Kennedy, hey. um, who was, you know, JFK's attorney general, his little brother. Right, right. Imagine Jerome, uh, he's 24 and he's been through some some real fucking brutality and he's, he's seen this with his own eyes. Mm-hmm. And now he's going up to this like polished up place in Central Park South to meet with This guy who could stop it all, who who could do something about Mm. the kind of brutality he just faced. Like, this is the the top cop of the land. RFK. RFK. And not only is he going to be in in this fancy Central Park South room with the Attorney General of the United States, the room is also filled with a bunch of activists, uh, including some kind of intimidating, successful black stars...
2: Like who who who's who's gonna be at this meeting?
0: So James Baldwin is okay. the person who, who invites him. Uh, you want to J- start there, Jimmy?
2: Jimmy is they call him.
0: <laughs> and uh, and Lorraine Hansberry, mm. who oh. A Raisin in the Sun. Yes. Uh, but this is really like about to be Jerome's uh, platform.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. What ends up happening is RFK is basically just running his mouth the whole time and he's taking up all the oxygen in the room he's he's like listing off all these data points from the justice department about all of the progress that's happening um in civil rights and jerome is there like with steam coming out his head like he's seething he's he says i felt a sense that we were losing because so many folk have been banged up all over the south it was a bad bad situation and he was just like Kennedy's coming at this situation from mm. like a very impersonal, numerical, high-level point of view. And also he's only focusing on like the good shit. So he held back as long as he could stand it, but he like cut through and interrupted Kennedy. And he w- and he said, Mr. Kennedy, I want you to understand I don't care anything about you and your brother. Huh. He says, "I don't know what I'm doing here, listening to all this cocktail party patter." What? <laughs> He's just like,
2: he "What said, am he, I doing?" Yes, he Jesus. said that to Robert F. Kennedy.
0: Yeah. Wow. Said,
2: so he sees through the bullshit.
0: Yeah. He 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 says, "I'm ha- I've had enough of of this little presentation dog and pony show." Yeah,
2: yeah. This yeah. isn't
0: this isn't worth my time. Like, what are you doing with my time? Right. <laughs> Basically. Damn. And he was like, he said, Kennedy was a cold blooded politician. He had no real interest in the salvation of me or my people or anything else. And he said, you're, The government, you're all worried about the wrong shit. You're worried about like black radicals, black Muslims. You're worried about all that. When you, the thing you really should be worried about is people like me who are practicing nonviolence and not seeing any progress mm-hmm. through that kind of action. Mm-hmm. And our patience, our spirits, cannot take that for very long. Yeah, like we cannot go through this degradation. You know, we can't just keep putting our bodies on the line for nothing.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. Damn, how do how do the other civil rights leaders respond? To, like, what they're probably looking at, the, like, who is this? <laughs> who is this <laughs> little man? Like, what is he talking about? Like. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's it's interesting because Jerome talks like a normal like New Orleans cat and yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and you have like James Baldwin talking this eloquent, you know, playwrights in the room. And actually like what Lorraine Hansberry says um she said she said like she was just as sickened by that by that cocktail pitter-patter talk. And she said You've got a great many very accomplished people in this room, Mr. Attorney General. But the only man who should be listened to is that man over there. And she pointed Jerome? to Jerome. Yeah.
2: Damn. So they
0: just basically, like, back him up. And so they echo, follow
2: up. They follow up.
0: And um, James Baldwin said, he said, um, he didn't sing or dance or act, yet he became the focal point. Hmm. He said that boy, after all, in some sense, represented to everybody in that room our hope, our honor, our dignity, hmm. but above all our hope. Damn. So yeah, Baldwin was like, yeah, him. Because yeah, I mean, we do put this emphasis on all of these esteemed like stars in Black history. Yeah. When all those esteemed stars in this one, in this one case anyway, were like, listen to this regular. Black man from the south,
2: yeah, who's just been doing the groundwork,
0: yeah, who's been doing who's been doing the groundwork, who's been living living this reality that you are talking about in abstract,
2: right? And it's
0: frustrating. And so, like that meeting went on for for three hours, and and Jerome really came in there with like a cut the BS moment that just the energy of that just spread throughout through the room. Mm. So, I mean, Kennedy, RFK is really like shocked, obviously. Like he's just like, what? Like (laughs) I thought. I was doing good, probably. I mean, that's that's how I imagine him. Jerome told RFK that just being in the room with him was making him nauseous.
2: Oh damn! <laughs> <laughs> like, sir, your uh, your presence is turning my stomach.
0: Yeah, basically. And then, um, but like, one of the things that really like turns turns RFK's head is when Jerome says, you know, what this is going to mean if 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 my country is not going to defend me and mm. my rights. I'm, ne- I'm not going to fight for this country, and RFK was like, "You wouldn't fight for your country," and Jerome says, "No," and and this really hit home for RFK because he he lost a brother to a war, and Jerome was trying to say, like, doing nothing will make people like him, like Jerome, lose faith in America. So RFK is shook, and yeah. he's really he's hearing this like kind of loud and clear.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And keep in mind, this meeting was in May. May 1963, Mm -hmm. and, you know, RFK is JFK's brother, President of the United States' brother, Mm -hmm. and a few weeks later, in June 1963, JFK goes on TV and addresses everyone in America and tells everyone in America that he'd be sending a civil rights bill to Congress, Oh, that he was going to finally try to pass a bill... That would address racial equality, yeah, for for black folks, and that's what ended up what becomes the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah, so you know can't prove can't prove anything, but but <laughs> but, but, but Jerome, you know, he made he made an impact that prove day. Can't
2: that Jerome is directly impo- <laughs> responsible for the Civil Rights Act, but but he did have a really really frank. good frank conversation with the brother of the president. Yes. Damn, Jerome. Jerome yeah. sounds like a real one. Yeah. Is he still alive?
0: Yeah, he's been working at a community center in Treme, in New Orleans. Oh. And, uh, like, he actually, they, the, cutest part, the cutest fact I looked up is that um, they call him Big Duck because mm-hmm. the kids that come to the community center just like follow him around. Mm-hmm. I just think it's really cute. <laughs>
2: So, what is it about Jerome Smith that you love so much? what is the the fuck your water fountain energy about Jerome that you yeah, that you really appreciate
0: okay I appreciate I really appreciate like two things mm-hmm. one that he didn't he didn't bend himself to the surroundings he was in like mm-hmm. he he, he was in this fancy ass Central Park South room with important people, but mm-hmm. he, he never he never stopped being himself yeah. in that in that setting.
2: Yeah.
0: And the other thing like that that touches me about it is um, is also, you know, there is this veneration over nonviolence um, and, and not being the strategy that that kind of turned the tide. Mm-hmm. And that's true but it only works when people who are practicing that nonviolence mm. don't lose hope and don't lose hope in the idea that their efforts aren't going to waste yeah. that the people who are seeing it are actually going to do shit about it as opposed to say like oh too bad so sad yeah we're it's it's like we're going to get something out of this nonviolence but also it's wearing thin if it's seen as like not working mm-hmm. you know you're going to have to answer For Black Anger on the other side of that.
2: On the other side of that. They work in concert. Yeah. It makes me... You know what? The fact that Lorraine Hansberry is in the room is like... And like Jerome has this kind of uh, outburst at RFK. It's like something about that feels like a little poetic given that, you know... Lorraine Hansberry's play, A Raisin in the Sun, based off of Langston. Well, not based off of, but like the name is inspired by Langston Hughes's Mm -hmm. poem. And that poem is literally what happens to a dream deferred. Does it dry? Or does it
0: explode? Or does it explode, (laughs) right? Yeah. What
2: happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe Mm -hmm. it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? And Jerome yeah. literally explodes in that room. Like he
0: explodes.
2: He explodes. Yeah. The dream that is being deferred right now is our is our rights. And like yeah, if you if you keep playing around and acting like it's just numbers and it's it's a game, then like this, we we gonna explode. That's the that's the answer to all yeah. this. So like you you need to you need to really take this seriously. Yeah. Jerome, motherfucking Smith. Yep. My nigga. these days Jerome Smith lives and helps out in his hometown of New Orleans we tried to reach him but folks at the community center where he's known as Big Duck don't have his number they just see him when they see him if you see him Please let him know that he's our first induction into our Fuck Your Water Fountain Hall of Fame. And Cecil J. Williams, the patron saint of this award, he runs a civil rights museum in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Please go visit him when things open back up. We're going to keep doing these over the next few weeks. So if you have someone who you think we should really know about who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, little known heroes who did some daring shit and looked good doing it, hit us up. Send us an email to resistance at gimletmedia.com with the subject line FYWF. Thank you so much for listening.
1: The Lace Lady traveled with Grace Baby. I can't afford to cover the course, of course, maybe settle that one in court, because judging by the basics, y'all are already comfortable stuck up in the matrix. Shit is basic.
2: Resistance is produced by Bethel Habte, Aaron Randall, and Salifu Sisei Mack. And hosted by me, Saeed T. John Thomas, Jr. Our production assistant is Navani Otero. Our supervising producer is Sarah McVie. We're edited by Lynn Levy, Lydia Paul Green, and Brendan Klinkenberg. Mixing, scoring, and magic by Katherine Anderson. Additional scoring and theme by Bobby Lord. Our music supervisor is Liz Fulton. Original compositions by Drea the Vibe Dealer and Tashi Mack. Fact Checking is by Rosemarie Ho. Our show art is by Darian Burks of the Stuyvesants. Credits music is Final Form by Sampa the Great. Special thanks to the homies WJ Sunday and Aliyah Yates. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. You can find me on Twitter at SaeedTTJ, as well as Bethel on Twitter at Bethel underscore Habtay. You can follow us on IG at Resistance Podcast. Resistance is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. All right, see y'all in two weeks.
1: What they started and we made it. Wait state I'm in, in all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin. Wait state I'm in, in all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin. Wait state I'm in, in all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin. Wait state I'm in, in all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin.